signatures of the Declaration of Independence, John Hancock, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. One thing you should remember, my friends, we could all easily have been hanged. Traitors, every one of us. Just suppose George Washington hadn't won the battle at Yorktown. Well, there we'd have been, standing with bowed heads before some British judge. In the name of His Majesty George III, I sentence thee, John Hancock, thee, Thomas Jefferson, thee, John Adams. And even myself, an old man, harmless enough. The Benjamin Franklin. You'd think the cheering might have been a little more restrained. Well, long before Yorktown, back in the middle of 1776, there we were, the delegates to the Second Continental Congress. Rebels with prices on our heads. The king had already offered a 500-pound reward for the arrest of John Hancock, who presided over our Congress. And that July, things looked very bleak indeed. Well, here we are in this white-paneled room, and here's where we've sat day after day, month after month, sharing the heat and the flies and the anxiety, especially these flies. There's a livery stable across the street, you know, and the horseflies in here are as big as tigers and just as ferocious. So, what are we doing here in Philadelphia, this half-hundred troubled homesick men? <coughs> Arguing mostly. We argue over just about anything that comes up. Oh, I surprise them by keeping silent most of the time. I've done my arguing in my time, done my tasks, made my points... I'm the oldest here, of course, a little over 70. And most of them are young. Why, Ned Rutledge there is only 26. So they're young and fond of making points, no matter how tedious. I let them ramble on and on. In fact, most of the time they think I'm asleep, but I'm not. Just letting them run out of steam, run out of words. I often marvel at their energy, considering the heat. Tom, what does thy thermometer say there? Seventy-six degrees, Ben. Tom Jefferson sits next to me here at the back of the room where we can see everything that goes on from the most interesting angle of all. He's the one young man as silent as I. So we all sit here consigning armies we do not have, paying with money we have yet to print, improvising, worrying, and mostly arguing. And we must listen to the dispatches that come to us from the commander-in-chief of our Continental Army. George sends us the most mournful dispatches. I just now received an express from an officer appointed to keep a lookout on Staten Island that 45 British ships arrived today. Some say more, and I suppose the whole British fleet will be here within a day or two. I am hopeful before they are prepared to attack that I shall get some reinforcements. Your obedient servant, G. Washington. Did you ever hear anything so depressing? John Adams himself went and took a look at our army at Crown Point. An object of wretchedness to fill the humane mind with horror. Disgraced, defeated, discontented, diseased, naked, undisciplined, eaten up with vermin. 
No clothes, beds, blankets, no medicine. No victuals but salt pork and flour. And then, you see, not only do we have the reverses of war to contend with, we by no means have unanimous support among the people. Many colonists prefer to stay under the power of old King George than risk the, the untried perils of democracy. They are not always gracious in expressing themselves. If I must be devoured, let me be devoured by the jaws of a lion and not gnawed to death by rats and vermin. Rats and vermin. Ah, well, so our continental army is in trouble in battle and we are in trouble at home. Sometimes the battlefield and home are one and the same. For instance, in June of last year, John Adams received letters from his Abigail home in Braintree, telling of the storming of Bunker Hill. How many have fallen, we know not. The constant roar of cannon is so distressing, we cannot eat, drink, or sleep. I went to bed after twelve, but got no rest. The cannon continued firing, and my heart beat pace with them all night. I shall tarry here till it is thought unsafe by my friends. Poor John. His farm is failing. He's left a good law practice to come join our rebel congress. And worse than that, he's left Abigail and he misses her sorely. No wonder he's often rude and cantankerous. Being of staunch Puritan stock, you know, he can take out his loneliness in only one way. Work and devotion to duty. He's rather irritating about it. I know. In fact, I know myself that I am an object of nearly universal detestation. Nonsense. It isn't as bad as all that. Many of us have great affection for John, but it isn't easy. He's always an honest man, often a wise one. But sometimes, and in some things, he is absolutely out of his senses. <laughs> well, never mind. Loneliness and anxiety do uncomfortable things to men. Look at young Tom Jefferson here, anxious about his ailing wife. Many of our company have personal problems to bear. Morris with his asthma. Caesar Rodney with a great cancer eating into his cheek. He'd planned to go to London for treatment. Well, he's changed his plans and without a murmur. Just so he could join us in this hot room full of flies. But now, early in July, the arguments have dwindled to a single issue. Independence. Virginia's Richard Henry Lee offered a resolution for independence last month. That these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them... Now and the, the thing is coming up for a vote. Is and ought to At be last. Totally dissolved. And it's still not clear if the resolution will carry. What do you say, Ben? Well, this Congress is an interesting batch of humanity... Young Hopkinson sitting there surviving the tedious debates by doodling caricatures. Abraham Clark with those great heavy eyebrows. Gary with his stammer. And all of us linked together in a sense, imprisoned in this room, sharing the anxiety. Anxiety about our homes and our families, our army and our friends in battle. Yes, we've come to know each other, sometimes too intimately, if truth be told. For instance, I've known John Dickinson for years and count him as my friend. So it is with some pain I see him struggling against us in our desire to adopt the resolution of independence. He just cannot seem to take that final step. What prevents him, Ben, is the timidity of an overgrown fortune. Oh, John, you are harsh. 
Dickinson is a good and conscientious man. Your friend Dickinson may kill the resolution once and for all. Look there, why he even has notes. No one uses notes for speeches in this Congress, thank God. Hush, John. Gentlemen, will our people at home not complain against our rashness? Declaring our independence at a time like this is like destroying our house in winter before we have got another. They will ask, why did we not wait until we were better prepared? Yes, Dickinson nearly killed independence that day, right, Tom? He might have if John hadn't answered him. But how reluctant he was to go over all the arguments again. Well, we had certainly heard them often enough, and at such length... But the New Jersey delegation insisted, so John got up and started to speak. Now, you'll admit with me, Ben, that John Adams was neither graceful nor eloquent, nor remarkably fluent, but he came out occasionally with a power of thought and expression that moved us from our seats, and so it was that day. Thank you, gentlemen. I can't remember a word I said. Pity. I do remember I wished at that moment that I had great gifts of oratory. But, well, I did what I could. I'm sure it was an idle misspense of time. Come, John, you know it was not that. I do wish someone had remembered the speech. It's almost the only one I ever made that I wish was literally preserved. Well, when you finished speaking and Mr. Alsop of New York was still not convinced we were ripe for independence, the good Reverend Witherspoon suddenly boomed out, We're more than ripe for it, and some are in danger of rotting for the want of it. Well, besides the speeches and the tempers, one episode of high drama... Rodney's ride, you mean, Ben? Yes. He'd been off looking into a loyalist uprising when word reached him that the vote on the independence resolution was about to be taken. He swung onto his horse and he set off on an 80-mile race against time. Explain about the Delaware delegation. Yes. You see, there were three on the Delaware delegation. Himself... Tom McKeon, who favored independence, and George Reed, who did not. Well, Rodney knew he had to get there in time to vote with McKean to make it two to one. In that way, Delaware as a whole would vote aye for independence. So, there was Rodney, racing toward Philadelphia. A storm came up to make matters worse. He and his horse were blinded by rain, and the thunderclouds made it dark even before nightfall. Now, remember what the roads were like then. Rutted and rocky, potholes big enough to wreck a carriage, and a thick layer of mud over it all, hiding whatever hazards there might be. At any stride, Rodney's horse could have stumbled and ended the race once and for all. Well, Caesar Rodney is a strange man. He rides on through the thunder and the rain all night and all next day. And finally, when we've given up hope and the vote's about to be taken without him, he comes riding up to the state house and enters the room there, mud from head to foot, his spurs clanking. A strange man, a strange sight. He stands there for a moment in the doorway, catching his breath. The Delaware delegation will now be polled. George Reed, how say ye? Nay. Thomas McKean, how say ye? Aye, for independence. Caesar Rodney, how say ye? I say aye. Aye, for independence. The Delaware delegation votes aye for independence. So the thing finally passed, 
As John said, the die was cast. Sink or swim, we were committed to independence July 2nd, 1776. Well, then we got to the matter of a formal declaration. We didn't really need one, that is, the resolution did the deed, but we felt... How did you put it, Tom? We wanted to place before mankind the common sense of the subject, to command their assent and to justify ourselves. So they chose five of us for the committee to draw it up. The three of us and Roger Sherman and Robert Livingston. Actually, we'd been at it since June 11th. That is, Tom Jefferson had been at it. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary... You must admit, John, that Tom was by far the best writer of us all. He did have a peculiar felicity of expression. His felicity of expression wasn't as peculiar as his spelling, but we won't go into that. ...of nature's God entitled them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the change. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Tom, instead of sacred and undeniable, try uh, self-evident. Hmm. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and independent. All men are created equal and independent. Tom tried to drive this home a little further on in a clause that threatened to cost us our unity when it went before Congress, as you shall see. But now it was still being passed around among us five. Tom himself did most of the rewriting. In the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station. I remember Roger Sherman with his shrewd dark eyes and his plain dark dress, not a button more than necessary, reading it over. I tell you, gentlemen, I have read the declaration and find it pleasing. Economy of expression, felicity of feeling. I have nothing to add and nothing to subtract. I shall leave it to the eager editors in Congress to mangle your document, Thomas. And mangle it they did. Poor Tom sat there listening to them tear it apart. He never said a word, of course, for it wouldn't have been becoming. But I knew he was in an agony. Not that he was a vain man, you know. Not that he thought his words were inviolate. But they had come from the center of him, so to speak. And his colleagues might as well have been editing his heartbeat. The one change in the declaration that was most painful to him, of course, was his slavery clause. Many of us had long wanted abolition of slavery. For instance, I happened to be president of the first Pennsylvania society formed for that purpose. And in Tom's Virginia, the House of Burgesses had tried to pass resolutions condemning slavery, but King George had either ignored or vetoed every one of them. And then, just recently, the king had been urging slaves in the colonies to rise up against their masters who were fighting for independence. So Tom put it all in there. The king has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, 
is the warfare of the Christian King of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has... Tom had capitalized men. Capital M, capital E, capital N, for slaves are men, not property, not cattle, not some blurred figures we don't need quite to recognize, but men. And they were created equal. Well, the objections were fierce. Edward Rutledge of South Carolina... The wisdom of slavery should be determined by the states themselves. But the question concerns not only the importing states, it concerns the whole proposed union. What enriches a part enriches the whole. But slavery weakens rather than strengthens a country. It is dishonorable. The whole thing is inconsistent with our principles. But to condemn the trade at this time would be fatal to the interest of South Carolina. If the gentlemen from New England will consult their own interest, they will not oppose the importation of slaves. It will increase the traffic in which New England will become the chief carrier. Young Ned Rutledge... Young Ned Rutledge was a swallow, a sparrow, a peacock. Excessively vain, excessively weak, and excessively variable and unsteady. Jejun, inane, and puerile. Mm, no, you didn't like him a great deal, did you, John? But as long as South Carolina and Georgia objected so strenuously to the clause, there was nothing for it. We took it out. I can hear some of you saying a declaration of independence that wouldn't condemn slavery. What kind of a declaration of independence do you call that? Well, at least it didn't sanction slavery. But I must agree with you that by amputating that passage, it left the patient alive but somewhat crippled. That particular cut could be attributed to the unholy alliance of the Southern and the New England delegates, the former objecting because they lived with slavery, the latter because so many respectable New England fortunes had been founded, at least in part, on the slave trade. In any case, the slavery clause was cut. Yes, what a stupendous, what an incomprehensible machine is man. He can endure toil, famine, stripes, imprisonment, and death itself in vindication of his own liberty, and the next moment be deaf to all those motives whose power supported him through his trial and inflict on his fellow men a bondage which he rose in rebellion to oppose. Well, when you assemble a number of men to have the advantage of their joint wisdom, you inevitably assemble with those men all their prejudices, their passions, their errors of opinion, their local interests, and their selfish views. So we found ourselves omitting this and that. The reference to Scotch mercenaries was offensive to those who still had the thick burr of Scotland on their tongues, for instance, and so it went. On the whole, Tom, I think the declaration was improved by the cuts. What the gentlemen of Congress did, I suggest, was to pare it down to pure Jefferson. Jefferson at his best. <laughs> Still trying to cheer me up, are you, Ben? I suspect you may be right at that. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the... So that was how it was. We passed the resolution of independence on July 2nd. We accepted the declaration of independence on July 4th. It was read and proclaimed throughout the land, and we formally signed the parchment on August 2nd. At the time, John Hancock said, We must be unanimous. There must be no pulling different ways. We must all hang together. And I said, yes, we must indeed all hang together, or most assuredly we would all hang separately. 
And old Stephen Hopkins said, you can see his wobbly signature there at the right. He said, my hands may tremble, but my heart does not. And so the deed was done. This declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The signatures of the Declaration of Independence. John Morton. He died first. Button Gwinnett. Fell in a duel within a year. Thomas Lynch, Jr. Signed at 27, lost at sea at 30. Richard Stockton. Captured by the British, cruelly beaten and soon dead. John Hart. Farm laid waste, victim of manhunt, soon dead. Francis Hopkinson. Home looted by Hessians. Benjamin Rush. James Wilson. William Floyd. Ah, so Arthur we pledged our lives Hilton. and our fortunes and many lost boats. We were all soon dead anyway, of course, Lyman by the way of things. Hall. But what about our Thomas sacred honor? Keen. They say that after Daniel we signed the parchment, Case. we applauded. Only ourselves John in the room there, Penn. and we applauded. I won't Even say whether we did or not. That's one of history's Louis secrets, Morris. and surely not a very important one. But if we did applaud, what do you Benjamin think, John? Harrison. What do you think, Tom? Matthew Thornton. Were we not right to do so? Robert Treat Payne. William Ellery. William Williams. Oliver Walcott. Philip Livingston. Francis Lewis. Robert This has been another program in the series, Our Nation's Heritage, produced and presented as a public service by Standard Oil Company of California.